that your opinion of me says more about who you are than it does me. And my opinion of you says more about me than it does you. When that self begins to crumble away, we can love each other openly and laughingly. There's always a lot of humor in it. I cry a lot easier now than I used to, and I'm not afraid of that anymore. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. That was the voice of Mr. Bill C. that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you are going to hear so much more from him again in just a moment. But first things first, this episode, Bill C. Q&A goes out to Terry and Todd and Kurt and Diana. You know what Terry and Todd and Kurt and Diana did? Well, let me tell you, they went to our website, soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. So thank you, Terry and Todd and Kurt. And Diana, for your generosity, this episode is coming right out to you guys. As usual, we are going to let everybody else listen in along with us because we are most generous, but this episode is coming right out to you all. I, John M., just happened to be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am most certainly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat around this virtual table and let's get started. So this last week, ladies and gentlemen, um, because of people like you and a God of my understanding was my 31st birthday, anniversary, whatever you want to call it, in Alcoholics Anonymous. It occurred on May 29th. May 29th, 1989 is my sobriety date. And the reason I bring it up is because I want to tell a story that goes along with that. Uh, I, last week, went to a, it was the first meeting I'd been into that it was a live meeting, an in-person meeting that seems like forever. I went to a, a local group here uh, near me called the Colony Group. And I went there uh, on Wednesday night 
and it was it was just fantastic. It was just so good to breathe in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and actually get to talk to a newcomer afterwards in person and and be able to have some conversation about. Um, just all the things that we talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? So I went to that meeting and uh, then on Friday at the last second, I decided, you know what? I think I'm going to go back there again tonight. So I went back. Uh, that was Friday, May 29th. And uh, I was sitting there. Uh, the meeting was about to start and I could tell they were reading the how it works and the traditions and all that stuff, stuff a little slowly. And they kept looking up at the door. And finally, I realized why they were reading so slow, and the reason that uh, they kept looking at the door is because they're the speaker had not shown up yet. It was a speaker meeting and you could tell they had the the podium up front and the microphone up there and all that kind of stuff. So after they got through with all that, they looked down at me and uh, the gentleman who was chairing the meeting, his name is John C., really nice guy. He looked down at me and he said, hey, I remember you here on Wednesday night. I like what you had to say. Would you mind coming up and sharing your story? We need somebody to come up here tonight. And I said, no problem. So I whipped off my mask, my you know, mask, uh, that I had been wearing, uh, into the meeting to, to be safe, uh, you know, because of all the quarantine stuff and all that kind of stuff. And so anyway, uh, I went up there and as soon as I got up to the podium, I noticed that his smartphone was sitting on the podium and I could see people on the smartphone, uh, that were looking at me like, you know, a very close range. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, they have uh, 10 people or so that are sitting on the Zoom meeting watching this, getting a close-up view of myself while I'm going to be telling my story. So there were people in the room and the people on Zoom, and they had absolutely zero idea uh, that it was my AA birthday. And so I was able to share that with them. We all had a great time. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But after that, they gave me a 31-year chip that they had in stock in the, at the group, and it was just a, a great way to kind of uh, cap off uh, uh, my birthday in Alcoholics Anonymous. So anyway, and I do that not for, I, I promise you, not for congratulations on your 31 years and all that kind of stuff. I just, I just think it's weird how God orchestrates these various... Um, uh, coincidences, if you want to call them, uh, these, uh, I, I'm losing words now, but you get what I'm trying to say. Anyway, God bless you. Thank you to the Colony Group. I'm so glad they were there on that evening. Now, let's go on to Mr. Bill C. Bill C., this is the live Q&A uh, following our Bill C. live meeting that you heard last week. So if you haven't heard the previous episode, it was Bill C. live. Uh, it was a Zoom meeting that we had and uh, Bill talked for, I don't know, about 50 minutes or so. And then we opened up the meeting 
after that event to you guys. And you all were able to submit your questions via chat to Bill, and Bill was able to answer your questions. And for me, this Q&A session was incredibly intriguing, uh, both the questions y'all asked and the answers that Bill C. provided. So buckle up, everybody. I know you're going to enjoy this so, so much. This is Mr. Bill C., uh, the live event, uh, the Q&A session on the back end of that. And after this, we will have plenty of oh, listener feedback for you at the end. Enjoy. Miss Shannon M., have any questions rolled in there for Mr. Bill C., please? Yes, we do have questions. Um, the first question is, what was the hardest person, place, or thing you had to forgive, and what was the result? My father. There's always a daddy issue, right? I hated my father. I really hated him. He didn't like me much either. I was the spawn of Satan. And uh, I was a bad kid. You know, I just was a bad kid. And uh, and at about a year sober, you know, at six months, I did a fifth step. And I had, an, I had a real experience on that fifth step. And what I realized was that it was going to be like this now. And I wasn't really sure what this was, but I knew the old life was over. So I, I was very, very fortunate that I had this sponsor that we, I showed up at his house every week and he sat with me alone, just me. I thought everybody was doing this. I didn't know there was other ways. You know, how would I know? I was new. And each week we read a chapter in the book and then we got to it. And I, I remember when we read the four-step part, and he says, okay, go do it. And I came back the next week, and I hadn't done it. And he just stood there and stared at me. I said, aren't we going to read anymore? And he goes, no, I'm, you know, you got to do the inventory. And you know, so it was like that, very simple. And I got it done. I sniveled about it for about a month, I guess, and I got the inventory done. And inside of a year, I started making amends. And on the top of my amends list was my father. And uh, I did not want to – I mean – when you make amends like that, when you have that kind of a resentment and you go and you apologize for your behavior, you lose the game. And the little ego doesn't want to lose. It's keeping score. And that's a big game to lose, man. That is a, a real, but I knew I had to do it. I mean, I, I was told this, you got to do this. You got to rid yourself of this resentment. And I wrote some stuff down and shared it with my sponsor and he helped me edit it, what I was going to say. And, and on his 70th birthday, we had a little birthday party at his house. And I went and I took, and he was sober. He was, got sober in 1954. So I'm bringing him in the other room to go talk to him. And he looked at me and he goes, you don't have to do this. And I said, you more than anybody know that I do get in the room. You know, it's like, you know, and so he, we went and sat down and essentially what I said to him is I said, you know, I know that I wasn't the son that you wanted me to be. You know, I didn't have to list all the transgressions. He was there for all of them, you know. I knew I wasn't the son you wanted to me, me to be, and you're my father, and I don't want to hate you anymore. I love you, and I'm sorry for the little monster that I was, you know, all the way up until now. And, uh, and I, left, I left there that night with my wife at the time, and I was driving home, and I just started sobbing. It came deep down inside and it was like somebody just reached in. I had a real experience. I mean, reached in and just pulled out all that rage, you know. Did it go away right away? No, but I had a real experience. That was a, 
one of the things about the ninth step, when you go look at somebody you don't ever want to see again and you make the amends, when you turn and walk away from that, you are changed right then and there. This thing, the whole thing is about transformation. It's all, that's what's happening here. To me, it's really not about not drinking, although I understand that, yes, we can't drink. But there's a lot more than that going on here. That's the catalyst that has driven us into this spiritual life. And there's a hell of a lot more than just not drinking. There's a lot of people in AA that just go to lots of meetings. I think they have decent lives and they're just not drinking. And that's okay. I'm not putting that down. But there's a lot more than just that. There's a lot more. And the amends process is when the transformation really begins to happen. This is when I start feeling good about myself. This is when the self-esteem starts happening. You can't help but feel better about yourself when you start taking ownership of your own life. You stop blaming. Remember, that's one of the things. You stop blaming. And the way you prove that you stop blaming is the amends process. You start owning your own side of it, you know, my faults and mistakes. So my dad was the big one. There were several others, but my dad was the big one. And I'll finish that real quickly. Ten years after I made amends to him, ten years, when I didn't need it, when I wasn't looking for it, our relationship had healed and we had grown closer, he made amends to me. So don't leave before the miracle. It was a mind blower. My mother was sitting at the table. This was a depression guy. Tough. They never said they're sorry, God damn it, ever. And when he made amends to me, my mother got up and left the table. She couldn't believe it. It was really stunning, you know. And, and I reached, he was started crying. He was blubbering. He never cried. Most people don't cry, right? And I reached over and I held his hand. I said, oh, daddy, it's okay. Everything's okay, man. We're cool. Isn't that cool? What a great, that's just, you know, I love amends stories. But that was oh, I love it. Shannon, is there another question? Oh, yes. We have a, quite a few. So um, the next question is going to be, okay, so this person's asking, uh, for a while now, they've stopped raising their hand at the group when uh, they ask who is available sponsor. And the reason is they have lots of sponsees, a wife and a child. And this person wants to know, am I resting on my laurels? Should I always be available? Yes. Give an opinion on that. Yes. <laughs> That's a really good laurel to rest on. That's a good one, right? You know, I'm, I'm not going to abandon my family for Alcoholics Anonymous. I just can't do it all, right? Here's the way that looked in my life, because I ran into the same thing. I, when, I got, when I got sober, I was married and I had two kids, a second, second marriage and the second set of two kids, right? The little girl was three and the little boy was four months old, right? So I get involved and I'm an extrovert. I'm into this, right? I'm trying to, yeah, I'm, I'm after it. And I, if I'm going to be an AA, I'm going to be the baddest AA you've ever seen, right? So I'm doing it. I'm spot, and I got a business to run too. I had a little business and, and I'm, I'm spread thin. And what's happening is, is I'm going to work and then all my sponsees are coming over to my office after work and I'm not getting home till eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night, right? And my sponsor had to send me home. He says, you can't be in a meeting every night. You got a family, go home. You don't have to be, I tell you something, if you've got, if you're married, you got kids and you, you, you got a job to do and stuff and you're going to eight or nine meetings a week, there's something wrong, man. You know, it's about getting back out into life, not about hiding out in AA and meetings aren't the deal. You can give up meetings, right? You get down to one or two or three a week. That's what happened to me, but you got sponsees, right? Now the sponsees, you can integrate them into the family. 
You know, I heard a guy <laughs> in a meeting say, you know, when I sponsor people, I bring them home or do I have something to hide? And I, right away, I thought, whoa, I need to bring them home. So I, there's a whole bunch of guys <laughs> that got sober in the late 80s in my garage with the garage door down and the kids kicking the soccer ball up against the garage door. My kids grew up with weird uncles having dinner all the time and these strange guys showing up at the soccer field helping daddy set up cones and stuff, right? When my daughter graduated from college, guys showed up to the graduation. It was like, it's like, and yeah, it's hard to explain AA people to other people, you know? What's that guy doing here? You know, it's like, well, that's just weird Al. He's okay. He won't kill anybody. He stopped doing that some years ago. You know? <laughs> I want, this is a true story. This is a true story. You can mesh this into your life, right? So people are always, I've done workshops all over hell about sponsoring people, but people saying in a real family, parents, especially dads are gone a lot. In an AA family, dad brings a lot of his stuff home. And what better example to show your children then you're then the father trying to help people less fortunate than they are, right? Integrating them into the family and having your children watch this, right? This is a true story. I'll walk through my living room one time. My 10-year-old daughter's on the phone. True story, no exaggeration. She's on the phone and she's I hear her say as I'm walking through the living room, Well, have you done your inventory yet? <laughs> and I stopped and I said, Who are you talking to? And she looked at me and she goes, Owen. And I went, Good, keep it up. And I just kept walking. <laughs> Owen did his inventory, you know, but I, you can integrate it. So I think you can, yes, you can be available. I live in the kind of house where I couldn't bring guys home to spend the night. It just, it wasn't appropriate. Other guys can do that. I've always had a little bit of money in my pocket so I can give guys money. Other people can't do that. They don't have money they can hand out. I've been able to do that. So I do that sometimes, you know, if I feel right about it, but I'll read the book with anybody, you know, I'll read the book with anybody except women, but I'll be friends with them. But my wife tells me who's 30 years sober that when I sponsor women, if you do that, you just allow them to hide from their own kind. You're not helping them because women know how to manipulate men. And I know that's true. I've been <laughs> manipulated by women my entire goddamn life. Nothing has changed from that either. Mostly I like it. <laughs> but I think there's a thing. Anyway, that's yes, always be available. Never say no. What else, Shannon? All right, we've got um do you have any tips or tricks to help with implementing meditation as a daily practice for somebody that just can't seem to stick to it? Yes, I have a good one because I've had that problem. Um Early on, early in my sobriety, I got intrigued with meditation and spirituality. And, you know, I was, I was a very intellectual atheist kind of guy that, and then when those guys change, we become insufferable. And, and so I got into it. I, I really started buying books and reading what I could and going and sitting with Indian guys and other people. And we had a wonderful journey, a wonderful time for a lot of years, me and my friend Wayne, um, uh, really jumping into this and going and sitting and listening to Baba Ram Dass. And I have a signed copy of Be Here Now, one of my prized possessions, you know. I've hugged that man several times and what a light that he was. But so much fun and there's so much laughter in it. One thing about it is that if, you, if you're going to go listen to people talk about God, be sure they're laughing. 
If they're not laughing, there's something wrong. Run as if from a hot flame, right? So there should be humor. It should be lightness, you know, that kind of, and I've done a lot of that. So I'd sit cross-legged. My little daughter used to sit with me and we would chant, you know, Shri Ram, Jay Ram. She reminded me of that today. She's 38 years old now. And, and we would chant together. And I would do that for a few days and then I'd miss a day and I'd quit. And I always believe that every morning, get up at a certain time, go sit in a place where the only thing that happens is meditation. Even if the house is burning down, you do it no matter what, you know, just like really discipline yourself. And I am undisciplined by nature just as a person. I don't do anything. I do things obsessively, but not with any discipline. I'm very random, you know, and, and that, I'm that guy. Well, at 20 years sober, I got sick. Three years ago, I had a liver transplant, but the hep C really kicked in and I got really ill. And it went on for a decade in, you know, until my liver finally failed. And I went through interferon twice and I was really in trouble. I was very sick and I almost died a couple of times, very seriously. So I started meditating with some real intent. The way I describe it is with intent, meaning I'm looking for help. I need help, spiritual help, emotional help. You know, I, did, I need to, I'm getting anxious, I, you know, frightened and all that that goes along with that. So what I did, and I've always liked meditation. I've never didn't like it. And I said, I need to do this. And I gave myself permission not to be disciplined. Because when you try to be disciplined and you're not, if you miss a day, you just quit right? That's what I would do. I just quit. And I'm lazy too. On top of that, I'm, I'm lazy. So I don't like to sit there like that every time. And, and I worry about it and stuff. You know, it's weird. I have weird. I'm better now, but I'm still strange. So anyway, I gave myself <laughs> permission to not be disciplined. And uh, so I just do it every day, you know? And here's another trick. What I've, what I've learned about it, my own personal thing, is that when you do this meditation practice of being in the present moment, the mind wanders and you gently come back, that egoic monkey mind thing begins to settle down after a while. It gets less loud. When you make the amends too, that really helps. It takes a lot of pressure off. A lot of people say they can't meditate. I ask them, have you done your ninth step? The answer is usually no. You do the ninth step, it kind of mm. clears the decks, you know, mm. it creates consciousness space. So, after a while, it slows down, and you spend bits, longer bits of time in the present moment. And in the present moment, it doesn't matter what noise is going on. Like if there's a leaf blower, it's in the present moment, attached to the sound. Don't worry about having it to be calm everywhere you go. Life isn't calm. You know, there's always stuff going on. And pretty soon, you realize you get a feeling for what the texture of the present moment feels like because it has a certain texture to it. It feels different when you're in that space. You know, there's not a lot of thinking that goes on. It's like when you hear a bird chirp, you just know it's a bird. You don't picture it. You just know. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting space to be in. So during the course of the day when you're not in the present moment, when you're anxious and you're projecting, you realize you're not there and you can return to it at will. You don't have to go sit cross-legged somewhere, find a quiet spot. You can just stop. You're looking in your computer and you can just realize, I'm just right here, right? It's like when you're driving and you realize, I'm only driving my car. <laughs> or you're trying to rush through traffic and you, and you come to this place where I'll get there when I arrive. 
You know, it's like and those things become very real. All of that is present moment stuff. All of that is a meditation with your eyes open driving the car, just being exactly where you are. Some people call it mindfulness. And there is rest and relaxation in that space. Here was another one they sent to me. Um, and it says... And this was from uh, Andrea. And Andrea says, right on, Bill. By the way, Bill, I will say to you that I had a few people uh, write to me and say, I cannot believe you're going to have Bill C. on Sober Speak Live tonight. I just absolutely love that man. I can't wait to put a face to a name. And here you are. Uh, It's just incredible. What does it usually say when you meet people at conferences? Am I as good looking as you thought I'd be? (laughs) Of course you are. (laughs) But anyway, Andrea writes writes in and she says, Right on, Bill. Everything we need resides within. The great reality uh, always has and always will be found within us. Innate well-being is our birthright. We just get in our own way. My question would be, Why do you think, Bill, that we keep hearing people in AA constantly say at Double Digit Sobriety, say they are broken? They wake up with untreated alcoholism every morning, question mark. What happened to what our founders saw? We've tapped into a power much greater than ourselves. Why is it popular in AA to claim brokenness? One of the things I used to hear is through, throughout the years is somebody get up at the podium and they would say, I'm a sick puppy and I hope I never get well. And uh, I used to sit there and think, boy, that's something to shoot for. <laughs> you know? God, you know, I heard an, uh, there used to be an old uh, guy around our area that always used to say, I'm living proof that you can stay sober a long time and still be angry. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, I can't wait for that. You know? um, I think there is an ethic in AA at some level with some people about that there's something inherently wrong with us. And we need to keep that in mind. Uh, I like the idea that there's something inherently right with us and we should try to shoot for that. You know, I mean, you know, like one of the things that's happened in this uh, pandemic thing there's a sense and people are talking about it a lot that life is, has become very dangerous. Ladies and gentlemen, life is always dangerous. It's never not dangerous. There is the illusion of security and safety, right? And uh, I mean, you can live in a bunker behind your big walls if you want, if that's how you want to live life. But if you're going to get out in the world, shit's going to happen. You know, I mean, it just does. And uh, I think also that uh, life is dynamic. It's not static. People talk about the second surrender, right? And uh, what about the third surrender and the fourth one? I've had several, you know. I mean, the light kind of comes on. I mean, powerlessness is huge. And we take we think we have power, and then once again, it fails again. I think that continues because the reality is we're, we truly are powerless. I think the universe, by its very nature, is a giving entity. 
we're always being supplied with everything we need, not always what we want, but everything we need. We just take exception to what's being supplied. Mm. You know, yes, life is dangerous. Bad things happen all the time. Also, it's very giving. It gives us a lot. There's a lot out there, right? Um, People talk about one of the things I think we have such a problem with intimacy is this whole idea that we have to protect ourselves. You ever heard somebody say, like in a relationship, I had to break up with her because I wasn't getting my needs met. So that's why you're in that relationship, right? To get your needs met. What a hell of a burden to lay on another human being. You know, the responsibility for meeting your needs. My God, why don't you look at why do you think you have needs? What's that about? You know, what is it that another human being has that you don't have that you need in order to be happy? I think that's a neurotic thing. Mm -hmm. That's a personal problem, right? I've had that most of my life. You know, I've had to confront that. You know, she stood in front of me and said, you know, you're not emotionally available for me. What are you talking about? Then sometime it became apparent what she was talking about. I didn't know that I wasn't available. So I think this brokenness thing, there's an aspect. It's like when we talk about that we have special thinking, you know, that we felt separate from, that that's kind of unique and strange. We're just having a human experience and we're not medicated. That's strange for us. But it's reality. It's the real world. I think I'm recovered. Like some people like to argue about recovering, where I'm always recovering. I think I'm recovered from alcoholism. I'm not drinking anymore. My life is significantly better. But I'm still human, you know. I mean, I might have some awareness. Am I enlightened? No. You know, I'm very human. Ask my wife how spiritual I am. You know, ask people around me, you know, I'll tell you something else. You can tell, here's another indicator for spiritual condition. If you're surrounded by people that love you, I am surrounded by people that love me. Now, some of us don't want to admit to that because it sounds very ego driven. No, it's just the truth. You know? I am, I am surrounded by love all the time, all the time. Sometimes I don't recognize it. You know, sometimes I have a difficult time accepting it. Sometimes I don't behave well, but it never goes away. You know, it never goes away. I think that's a really good indicator of spiritual condition. If you can look around you. And when I was in the hospital after I had my liver transplant, all of you showed up inappropriately saying inappropriate things to the nurses and stuff like you do, you know, I mean, we can bring lightness into a room with dark humor in AA where the family members can't and you constantly were making me laugh and just behaving badly and upsetting me and stuff. It was wonderful. And I tell you, so I had an experience where I, where it was difficult for me to accept the love that was being given to me. And I, and I I was forced to look at that. Why would that be difficult? I got asked a question recently. I was talking at a place and somebody was asking me about humility. How do you deal with the, you know, humility? This is a general question about humility. And here's the truth about self-love as far as I'm concerned. 
We all talk about how it's difficult. We'll even say really weird crap, like you got to learn to love yourself before you can love others. <laughs> that's total bullshit. You know, it's like, that's like putting yourself at the top of the amends list. You've been your own worst enemy. That'll pretty much kill you. You know, I, mean, I don't know where we come up with this stuff, you know, but the way I learned to accept love or to start loving myself is through attempting to love you in my own halting, stupid, stunted, ego-driven way. And as the years have gone by, it's morphed into something. And here's where my life is now. People, not everybody, but a lot of people look up to me and they respect me. Isn't that wonderful? I think that's one of the most loving things that's ever happened in my life. If you know where I come from. To, come, to arrive at 72 years old, where people look up to me and they want to come hang out with me because I'm really cool. You know, I'm funny and I'm fun and I'm kind and I'm sweet and I'll take care of you and I'll hold you and I'll hug you. To some people, I'm a father figure. To some other people, I'm a grandfather figure. I don't know when the hell that happened, you know. But sometimes we don't want to say that kind of stuff out loud because it makes us look like we're too big for our head. No, it's just the truth. People like me, not everybody, you know, but a lot of people like me. And I've come to a place in my life where a lot of us have. A lot of my friends are like this, where it's clear because nothing's personal, right? One of the indicators of spiritual condition, one of the foundation stones, that your opinion of me says more about who you are than it does me. And my opinion of you says more about me than it does you. When that self begins to crumble away, we can love each other openly. And laughingly, there's always a lot of humor in it. I cry a lot easier now than I used to, and I'm not afraid of that anymore. When did that happen? I'm not really sure. But that has happened. Have I been healed? Absolutely. You know, I'm not a sick puppy anymore. I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that guy. Do you? Uh, Sarah asks, what is your opinion on how we handle our own kids who are possibly following our path like teenagers shoot them <laughs> put them out of their misery <laughs> um, all joking aside that's a hard one uh we have a family member right now my wife's uh niece has a stepson that's really a nightmare and uh, they're back in connecticut and we've been on the phone and we've hooked up i got some buddies and you know we hooked him up and you know the poor kid is he's in a recovery place now that's a hard one what makes it hard is what Al-Anon teaches us is that do you love them enough to step over them as you're walking in the door you know at some point you have to let them go easier said than done i have a 52 year old son up in oregon who's on his on his deathbed he's dying he's been in and out just recently got out of the hospitals his kidneys failed on him you know, he's a really bad alcoholic and a drug addict. And, you know, he won't talk to me every once in a while. I can talk to him. But I've over the years, I've done whatever I can. You know, I can go on and on. It's hard to let go. But his mother, my very first wife, she cannot let go of him. And she's bringing food over to him. And she's just nursing him right into the grave. It is a horrible thing to watch. And, uh, you know, untreated Al-Ananism is as ugly as alcoholism. You know, and uh, at some point we need to walk away from him, but I can't tell you when that is. I don't know. 
And, you know, with my own son, I've had to let him go. I stopped sending him money. Um, I had his mother send him down here to LA to me. And I said, all I want you to do is don't let him come home and I'll take care of him, but don't let him come home. And she let him come home. And now he's dying at 52. You know, it's just awful. So I, I don't know what to do about that. You know, I've had a lot of friends, you know, and, and I've, I've actually sponsored some of my friends' children over the years. And we've got some guys that are sober. It's really cool. You know, I mean, I've been in AA meetings with my dad, myself, and two, both those older boys all at the same time on several occasions over the years, trying to help, trying to do what I can, you know. But at some point, I, I have to let it go. But it's hard. There's no good, clean answer about it. You know, nobody wants to see a child die, and it happens all the time. And uh, I don't have a good answer. I mean, you know, you try to direct them to, hey, we, my wife's uh, nephew is six years sober. He was, he was a rotten little bastard, you know. Now he's a plumber. We have him come over and work on our house. <laughs> so recovery runs in families as well as alcoholism. Um, somebody asked how you pick your selections for your daily emails. And uh, so this is something we haven't actually mentioned yet. But if anybody wants to be on Bill's daily email list, you should email him at Bill C B I L L C at kitchentableaa.com. Uh, that's Bill C at kitchentableaa.com. In fact, Shannon just put it in the uh, the chat there. But they want to know how you select your daily. This started off, I think, around 2001 or 2002. And my friend Ed Moore started it. He started doing it. And then he moved to the Netherlands, to The Hague in the Netherlands. And, uh, and uh, he started sending these things out and he would send them to me. And I started doing workshops and stuff like that. And people always wanted the materials that I had, like AA history stuff. So I started gathering email addresses so I could just email it all rather than copy it and print it like we did back in the good old days. Some stuff is a lot better now. And, uh, um, and so I started just sending these things out, I think around 2002. And Ed actually compiled them and put them, put them together. And then at some point, he got real sick and, and, and passed away some years ago. And, and long before then, he actually gave me his whole list, and I started, I took it over. But Ed actually put them together, and then I started putting them together. And there's quote services you can use. Um, you'll notice that a lot of times there might be an AA quote and then maybe something from Mick Jagger and Leonard Cohen, <laughs> you know. And you can use quote services and put in subjects, and it'll come up with quotes, and they do some of that. Other stuff is just from stuff that I read and get, you know, and, and just put it together. But there's no real rhyme or reason to it. But Ed Moore, my buddy Ed Moore, God bless him. He was one of my dearest friends. And uh, he started that. And it's a lot of what you see. The ones that, I, that are coming out now are being recycled from ones I sent out back in 2008 and 2009. So long, it has been a long time since I've come up with any new ones. These are recycled to start over and go through it again. Craig writes in and he says, uh, knowing I'm alcoholic versus conceding to my innermost self and my heart, I'm an alcoholic. Is there a difference to you? And then he adds on at the end here, I'm only a few weeks sober and I've been having issues with relapse. Truly conceding is where I am. Conceding what? If there's a difference between what? I read. 
So is knowing. So what I'm how I'm reading this is he says a knowing I'm an alcoholic versus conceding to my innermost self in my heart. I'm an alcoholic. I think you've uh, put your finger on the spiritual conundrum. Um, I got sober on March the 27th, 1985. I have no rational explanation for that. Uh, my story is that the obsession never came back. Uh, my sponsor, my sponsor, you know, he wanted to drink every day for the first 90 days, I think he says, you know, and then one day he reached for a Coke and he didn't want a beer and it, it went away. And given you hear a lot of people talk about, you know, I walked in and it just got lifted. So what you're describing, like knowing in your head, I knew I had a problem for <laughs> forever, you know, and I just, so what? I'm just going to keep, I had no desire to stop. So I have no idea how you make that trans transition from knowing to have it really settle in your heart. I don't have an explanation for that. What I know, what I can, the, how I can participate in your life with you, if you want to be sober, I have a lot I can bring to you. You know, I can, I can work the steps with you. I can introduce you to my friends. I can take you places. I can do a lot for you. But I cannot get you to stop drinking. I have tried. And I am no good at stopping someone from drinking when they're going to drink, right? Like we always tell guys, you're like, call before you drink. Well, if you could do that, you wouldn't <laughs> fucking drink. You know, it's like, it's like go to meetings and don't drink in between. Well, what do I need you for if that's all I have to do? You know, it's like that kind of stuff. You know, it's all very good advice. It'd be good if we could follow the advice. But unless that obsession gets lifted, which to me is spiritual in nature, like, exactly. This is my thing. What else do I need to know about God or whatever label you put on this thing? You know, whatever it is, is March the 27th, 1985. Yeah. It took me six months to realize that that had happened to me. You know, when I realized the old life was over. So I can't answer that question. Teresa says, I sponsor someone on antidepressants. Some people think she is not sober. Oh, I know what you're going to say to this, Bill. They say you are not sober if you take anything that affects you from the neck up. I know the I know your story of a man who is bipolar. So she just wants to. So I guess the question is, if you're on antidepressants, does that mean you're not sober? When I hear somebody say that they don't so they don't sponsor people that are on medication. I move away from them so that when the lightning bolt comes down, I'm not going to be collateral damage, right? Um, I think it's about quality of life, not about being sober correctly, whatever that is, you know? I'm not sure about sober correctly, you know? I mean, I'm sure that I smoke cigars. There's probably some, but there, I know there are people that are ashamed for me that, you know, that I could be spiritual and still smoke. My God, what's that, you know? And, uh, but my, my, I had an opinion, then I had an experience and it changed my opinion. I sponsored, it's hard to find people that aren't medicated, to be honest with you. You know, it, my wife has a lot of, her girls are on medication of one kind or another. I have helped some guys get off medication and I've helped guys get on it, you know? I mean, there's a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous that have no life, no health insurance at all. And, and if, if you've ever experienced bipolarity, it's pretty stunning. I've seen it. I've held it in my arms and rocked it. You know, I've seen it. 
I think there's a lot of people that are medicated that don't need to be because that seems to be the direction of the industry nowadays. You know, I, I've seen that. You know, I get that. I have opinions about that, but, you know, I'm not a doctor. But I've seen people that are righteously bipolar. And when I see them coming now, I go, have you taken your medication, dude? Because you're fucked up, man. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, that's just the way it is. There's no other word to use for that. That's crazy, right? And they don't want to be that way. It's painful to be like they are. And another thing I know, that those people on medication shouldn't drink. And I know about not drinking. So I'll work with anybody. I, I, there are, I have had experiences, though, where I've realized that I'm in way over my head. There's people that have mental issues that I really can't help them with. And the 12 steps aren't going to help them with. And I've helped people find some therapists. And the other thing that we do that I think is really cool in AA is there's, there's, I know people that have similar problems. I can put people together. I had, a, I had an experience recently that just really rocked my world. This guy I know that I think a lot of came over to read a little inventory. I'm not his sponsor, but he just wanted to read some inventory to me. And in the process of that, he described that he has OCD, and I did not know that. He's been sober a while. He's the secretary of our men's stag right now, as a matter of fact. You know, good guy, good, good guy, you know, professional guy. You know, that. And he tells me, I go, really? How is that? And he tells me about it, and I was stunned. And he goes to OCD Anonymous, right? And he goes to therapy. And here's what he told me. We talked about, in my talk, we talked about how the ego is trying to protect me from stuff and it's coming up with problems that aren't there. That's OCD. You know, and some people have it really bad. Like, watch out, you didn't do this, be careful, all this stuff, right? So what he does is he has an internal dialogue with this. And he says to, to this voice, this voice, thanks so much for trying to help me. I really appreciate your input. I'm going to move on with my day now. Now, what is that? But when my mind wanders away, I gently bring it back to the breath. That's exactly what that is. It just rocked. So now I have a contact and several of my guys, I realize now these people have OCD and I send them to Dave. <laughs> you know, we're a full service organization, you know. <laughs> I've, 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 I've sponsored some schizophrenics, man. I had one guy that was on Respiritol. He was just drooling. He was so bad, you know? And, and I asked, I asked my other schizophrenic guy, what's, what's that? And he, he's a walking physician's death's reference. He's been on everything. And he goes, oh, that's bad stuff. And I go, what's it for? He goes, it stops the voices. So I go back and I asked the other guy, I said, do you hear voices? He goes, not anymore. <laughs> right? <laughs> I said, well, what did they say to you? And he goes, I don't know. I couldn't make it out, but I listened really carefully. <laughs> it just gave me the creeps, man. Like people have problems I don't have. That's just the way it is. You know, so I can't fix your schizophrenia. Hey, this quickly, this other guy that was schizophrenic, this is sad. It's, it's, we laugh, but it's not funny. He was sitting across from me in my ashram out in the backyard. We're reading the book, right? And he's pretty heavily medicated. And he's, you know, we've been working together for a while. And he looked up at me and he said, with tears in his eyes, he goes, will this help me? And it just, it broke my heart, right? And all I could think to say is, I don't know, man, 
but I know it won't hurt you. And AA doesn't hurt people. We don't reject people. We don't shoot our wounded. Rule number one, if there is any rules in AA, I think there's one. Everyone gets to come. Elizabeth asks, she says, uh, I had the same relationship with my mother as Bill did with his father, but my parents died 13 years ago, so I didn't get to make that amends and heal the relationship. How do I heal it in my heart? My son that's dying from alcoholism and drug addiction up in Oregon when he this last time he was in the hospital it brought up a lot of remorse and regret I have. Uh, when I was in the mental institution in the 60s, those were those two kids, and I was not there for them for years. And I have a lot of remorse and regret about that. Now, I've made my amends. I've gone up there and talked to them, and I've tried my best over the years to help them and be there for them as best I can. But it doesn't rid me of the remorse and the regret. It gets diluted as time goes by. and. Uh, I think with parents who have passed away, we can go to the grave and sit by the gravesite. We can write letters. I've had a lot of guys over the years do that. But, you know, you're always going to carry some of it around in your heart. You know, I have some things that I've done in my past that every once in a while I get a twinge when I think of it. It's just the way it is. And I got to learn to live with it. I did some things that were just reprehensible, just awful. You know, um, I've made some amends to people that didn't want anything to do with me and really wouldn't listen to it, but I did the best I could. But I have regret and remorse about that. You know, so I think we can do ceremonial things like with your parents. You can go to the gravesite, you can write a, write a note, and you can sit there, maybe clean it up, wipe it off a little bit, say some prayers, do something significant, you know, some ceremonial thing significant to kind of put closure to it. But there's always going to be a little bit of a scar in your heart. It's part of being human. Uh, Michael asks, he says, does that include narcotic medication like THC? I think he's asking about the, uh, you know, we were talking about the antidepressants and such like that. Mm-hmm. Got any opinion on that? Yeah, if you're smoking pot, <laughs> you're not sober. <laughs> it's like, or you're eating it or using a suppository or whatever you're doing. You know, if you're doing ayahuasca and throwing up in your living room, you know, you're not sober. And uh, I had a guy recently, we call him Pot um, uh, uh, Eric. It's like he took a 10-year cake in our men's stag. He came from out of town and showed up back to A, took a 10-year cake, and, and then told me later that he was smoking pot and asked me what I thought. He was sitting in my car, and I go, well, you know. And uh, – I said, sooner or later, you'll come clean, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, you wouldn't ask me the question if you didn't know. know? If you're getting loaded, I mean, serotonin reuptake inhibitors are not narcotics, you know? Um, Adderall is a little iffy. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, if you're you're eating some speed and, and some downers, it's questionable. You know, it's like, you know, you know, you know, or you wouldn't ask me the question. That's right. Nick C says, uh, can I pass on a question to Bill? Bill, you mentioned being emotionally unavailable 
and they think we're withholding something, but the truth is we don't even have the thing they are looking for. Does that ever change? And how do we do the right thing by those people in the meantime? Yes, it changes. Yeah, it changes. And the way it changes is the way it has changed for me. And I still struggle with it, too, to be honest, to be quite honest with you. My wife got mad at me the other day because I get pissy, right? I got pissy and I, and I made fun of the way she said something to me. They love it when you do that, by the way. You know, they really get off on that. And, it's just, and that'll, that'll last about three days when you do that. You, know, you just have to wait it out. You know, and uh, but when I started sponsoring people, what I describe is I fell in love. I started, you know, like there can be a guy that I'm worried about and and he'll take up some conscience because I'm worried about the guy. Maybe I'll even reach out and make a phone call once in a while. I feel he's drifting, stuff like that. That's compassion. That's It's very simple, you know, and and I miss it. I missed it for a long time. I didn't realize it because it's subtle and I'm I'm a drug addict. I'm looking for a head rush all the time. Compassion is quite subtle. You know, you start feeling for people. And then what happens is you start to bring that home. You start paying attention. You start talking to people about relationships, you know. You know, I, I would talk to people about the problems I was having with my wife, you know, and I, re I could realize because I'm not asleep anymore. You know, what, why is it so hard for me to say I'm sorry to her? Why is it so, like, like here's, here's a common scenario. You're standing out in the parking lot of the meeting hall with a bunch of other guys, and you're talking about women. And you're saying things like, well, you know how they are. They're all emotional and shit, you know. They're from Venus, and we're from Mars. And you start telling women stories about how they are. Now, at some point in the maturing process, you got to cut that shit out, you know. Like one of the common things that you hear is whenever she comes home, she always wants to talk. Why does she always want to talk? What is wrong with them that they always want to talk? You know how they are. Let me ask you a question. Why the hell don't you want to listen? Do you ever think about that? Why don't you want to listen to the woman you live with? Or the mate you live with. I've sponsored a lot of gay men. It's the same thing. It's no different. I mean, at all. It's not different at all. He just talks about Joey instead of Sarah. It's the same thing, right? Why don't we want to listen? Why don't I want to listen? What is wrong with me that I don't want to listen? And personally, my own experience, I don't think they're that much different than we are. We just don't know how to get along well. I don't think it's a male thing. I think it's an insensitivity thing. It's lack of compassion. Look at who look at the look at who we're dealing with here. We're alcoholics, right? What did I describe? We drank through the learning years. We are emotionally immature. We're not that special. You know? And and I've I've known men, non-alcoholic men that are much my son-in-law's here. He cooks and cleans the house and I told him, I said, dude, you are making the rest of us look bad. You need to cut that out, you know? And he's married to my daughter, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm stunted, and I see that. Am I as stunted as I used to be? No, I don't think so. 
but I still have the same, I'm, I'm lazy and stuff. And I will, I will turn a relationship with a woman and she'll become my maid, my mother, you know, I've, I've done that. And I, and you look back in your history and you can see how you've done that. Is that the kind of relationship I want? No. And I don't want to be that kind of guy. I want to be somebody that when she comes home and she wants to talk to me, I am available for that conversation. That's who I want to be. Um, Wayne from Tucson asks, what can you do when your home group, which I love, gets away from AA and deals with, quote, emotions, unquote, and that's it? My sponsor told me that the meetings are for recovery from alcoholism, not about how your day went. I suspect that's what you're talking about. Um, I've been, I have a meeting in my house Tuesday night. It's a small meeting and it's a real safe place. And a lot of emotions are talked about, right? But we also talk about the solution to that emotional turmoil that you're going through. I mean, it's essentially a, a spiritual book study. And uh, so we talk about the human condition and someone will share about a problem that they're having in their personal life and how they feel about it and stuff like that. And we'll have conversations about emotional maturity and about compassion and stuff like that. But it's in the context of, you know, a spiritual path. So there's a couple of things that don't work well in AA meetings. Um, you're in an AA meeting and you're talking about an emotional situation. You're trying to turn it into a group therapy thing. It doesn't fly well. It doesn't work well that way because that's not really what we are. It doesn't mean you can't have those conversations. In a meeting, it just doesn't fly well. You know, I mean, it, people don't get it. Plus, you're, plus the fact you're talking when you're in a room full of emotional cretins. <laughs> Usually. <laughs> that's my home group. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're all about recovery. My home group is like if some guy comes in there and starts talking about his girlfriend, we'll just start clapping until he stops. It's like really rough. You know, it's like it hasn't happened in a long time because we have a reputation. We're not going to sit here and listen to you badmouth your girlfriend or your wife. That's not what we do there. AA for me is about man school. It'll teach you how to grow up. And part of that growing up process is getting in touch with your emotional nature. I'll grant you that. But those discussions usually happen outside the AA meeting. You know, the, the meetings aren't a good place to actually throw that stuff out there because you can't crosstalk. There's no back and forth. You're not really having a conversation with somebody. You're just dumping a bunch of emotional crap in the middle of the floor and leaving it for us to clean up. You know, so it, it just doesn't work well. It doesn't mean that it's not a good discussion to have. But in my backyard, that's a whole nother game. You know, that's what sponsors are for. Usually when you hear people talk about that stuff in meetings is they don't have a sponsor or they don't have a real peer group that they're close with where they can have those conversations. You know, I have a people, I have people around me that'll, that I can, you know, that have what Charlie Parker calls spiritual consent. You know, you, you can, you can step into my crap and tell me that I'm way off base. I give you spiritual consent to do that. And I've got a handful of guys that will do, have done that for me. I was in a hospital one time before I had the liver transplant, right? And the nurse comes around and they ask you, do you want some more pain medication? They ask you what your pain level is, right? From zero to 10. 
right? What's your pain level? So here's what I'll give you. This is some good advice. Tell them seven because then you can get what you want, <laughs> irrespective of what it is. Seven, they'll do. But if you give them eight or nine, they know that you're not squirming around that bad. They know you're full of shit. And if you tell them two or three, they won't give you anything. So seven is the number, right? So I'm sitting in my hospital bed and I'm pretty screwed up, actually. I mean, it was real. And my buddy Brooks that I've sponsored for years, who has spiritual consent with me because we've been together forever, right? And I told the nurse seven and she leaves. She goes, okay. And she leaves to go get the stuff, right? And Brooks looks at me and he goes, why don't you wait till you have some pain before you throw that number out? And I looked right at him and I said, hey, look, dude, I'm the sponsor, not you. And he just said, he said, you know, Cleveland, you're full of shit. You know, it's like, essentially, that's what he said. That's spiritual consent, you know? That's how spiritual I am. Lawrence asked, um, how would you suggest making amends to a father who sexually abused me and I've never talked to him about it and nobody knows? I have significant resentments. I've, I've run into that. Um, and I'll tell you this. If you've got that kind of a scar, you need to go to a therapist and deal with it. Um, that I, I don't have that experience. I have people that have. Um, that's a tough one. And, and I can tell you that you need, you need to have some therapy around that. And you need to find some people that have had that experience and talk to them about what they've done with it. And, uh, and they're available in AA. That you, you are not alone. I'll tell you that. That's, uh, I don't know how common it is, but it's frequent. You run into it a lot. And, uh, but I, I couldn't tell you specifically how to do that. I have an idea, but that's not good enough for you. You need to talk to people that have had real live experience with that. How do you square your, uh, square your continued regret with the promise that we will not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. What that is, is in the context of when you're working with others, um, where that really comes into play is when you're sitting across my kitchen table and you're talking to me about some of your pain. And I understand exactly what you're saying because I've had the same pain and still sometimes I do. Um, I don't regret the past. It is my past. It's my story. And, uh, and I'll share it with you. That's why I don't regret it. Do I regret some of the things I've done? Sure I do. Yes, I do. There's not much I can do with it. There is a certain amount of acceptance about it. I mean, I did those things and I can't take that back. You know, so I don't regret the past. I don't wish to shut the door on it. But I have some regret and remorse about what I did. But the reason I don't regret it anymore is because it has served me quite well in working with you and helping me develop compassion because of that. God comes to us in our brokenness. That's when it comes. Not when we're good boys. I don't think he's that interested in good boys. They're already good boys. God likes the bad boys. He especially loves us. I love it. Uh, a friend of mine, in fact, uh, Mac, uh, he he was on this meeting. He always says, uh, the best friends that I have in the world are not the people that I told them what a great guy I was. I generally let them in and told them about all my uh, 
weaknesses. So we've had several questions about this particular event. And uh, yes, we are going to have it posted on Sober Speak at some point so you can re-listen to it if you need to. But I want to recognize some people. We have Buddy on the call, Cassandra, and uh, Jim Savage, who did all that great music at the beginning of this. I sure do appreciate that. Cassandra, Buddy, Shannon, my beautiful bride. Thank you so much, Shannon, for helping out here. The the main person I want to thank, our guest of honor tonight, Mr. Bill C. Can everybody give him a round of applause there? Thank you, Mr. Bill C. I see all the hands clapping. I know you can't hear them right now, but I appreciate it. All right, so let's go ahead and close this out with the uh, Lord's Prayer. And then once again, I will go ahead and open this out for all of you to communicate with each other. Bill, would you like to lead us out in the Lord's Prayer, please? Okay, after a moment's silence. Our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the day, this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thank you, Bill C. What an incredible live event we had. And I so appreciate you taking the time to stick around afterwards and answer everybody's question. Um, It was an incredible event. Thank you one more time. And thank you to all of you who attended the event. And thank you to all of you who pose the questions for Mr. Bill C. Now, on to a little bit of listener feedback for you. Tony writes in and she says, Hi, John, I love this podcast. 20 years, so 21 years sober for me, a 22 year old daughter that just got home from treatment and sober living. She's doing great, but I need to step up my Al Anon game. Please invite me to the Super Secret Facebook group. Thanks, Tony C. Well, Tony, as you know, we got that invite out to you. And thank you. Uh, congratulations on your 21 years. And God bless you and your daughter as you go through this uh, tenuous time in sobriety. I get it. By the way, if any of you out there would like to join the Super Secret Facebook group, Send me your email associated with your Facebook account to John, J-O-H-N at SoberSpeak.com and we will get you out the invite. Terry writes in and she says, John, I would love to be part of the secret Facebook page. This is Terry S. I am in the Frisco group with you. This is somebody from my home group, Um, but we haven't got to see each other very much lately. She she says, thank you for doing these podcasts. They are a great resource when I am having a bad day. They are inspirational and they are much appreciated. Thank you for your service to other alcoholics. Love, Terry. We'll love right back at you, Terry. Thanks so much for writing in and I look forward to seeing you in person someday soon. Catherine writes in from the United Kingdom and she says, Hi, John.
John. I just want to say a huge thank you for your show, exclamation point. My sponsor introduced me to it because the bills because of the Bill C share on steps five and six and seven was perfect for me to hear here. I now listen to your show when I go to bed and I love your humor cheery personality, and I may say slightly quirky style as the MC. I am always chuckling away as I listen and feel entirely more sober having listened to you and your guests. It sets me up for a nice contented sleep. Catherine in the United Kingdom. Oh, Catherine, thank you so much. That that just meant so much to me, uh, you know, all of all of you guys and your writing is great, but, you know, sweet dreams, Catherine, as I think I responded when I sent an email back to you, and I'm so glad that we can help you get to sleep at night. God bless you, Catherine. Alexandra writes in, she says, hi, John, I live in North County, San Diego, Encinitas, California, and I heard about Sober Speak from Bill C., This seems to be a uh, common theme here lately. She says, I receive his daily emails. I like listening to stuff when I run or bike. I have been sober since 12-23-93. I get something from everyone. One of my favorite speakers is Norm Alpe. I know, gosh, uh, uh, Norm's been uh, passed away for many years now, but uh, he was one of my favorites as well. And also Tom Tom W. And I, of course, love Bill C. too. I'm a bit busy right now, but I love my life and I wouldn't have it if I was not sober. Alexandra. Well, thank you, Alexandra, for writing in. I really do appreciate it. And congratulations on your sobriety since 1993. I'm probably going to mess up this name, but it's M-A-C-I-E-J. Masiaj. Masiaj? writes in and he says, Hi, John. I'm 44. I'm a 44 year old man living in London, originally from Poland, trying to give up alcohol. I have started drinking quite, I have started drinking quite late, around 30 years old after moving to the UK. It must sound strange that I haven't picked up drinking in Poland as a vodka birthplace. <laughs> My vodka. Give me my vodka. Anyway, I understand. And he says, I have come to AA in November last year after losing a job and drinking to oblivion. I ended up in the hospital with alcohol withdrawal symptoms. I have been drinking for years and I always knew I had a problem, but it was gradually taking over my life. It was creepy in really, gradually, really canny disease in my case. I have been sober since December. I have, I have been sober since December 2019 for three months, and I have relapsed in the end of March. I am still drinking, but trying to put things together. It's tough. I thought I had it over control and then I thought I had it under control and then the lightning struck. 
I understand, my friend. I listen to your podcast and it gives me hope. Often, it puts me to sleep with a hope that the next day I will be good. I am fighting and not giving up, but failing. But I will never give up and maybe succeed one day. God bless you, John. Um, Well, I'm so glad also in your case that I can help put you to sleep at night with some of these speakers, and God bless you, and uh, sweet dreams to you, my friend. Don't give up, as we always say. Don't give up before the miracle happens. Um, I see it happen all the time. I, my friend, was in and out of AA for three years myself, but I didn't give up, and I thought it was all over, but it wasn't. And so far, I've been doing this for a day at a time for quite a while. And because of people like you, I'm able to stay sober. So thank you for helping to keep me sober today, my friend. All right, that is another episode in the books. As I always say, I'm taking this one week at a time. God bless you all. Thank you. I love you. Keep coming back. It works if you work it.